Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hawk. My guest today is Scott Sumner. Scott is a distinguished economist, now semi-retired, but currently a researcher in the Monetary Policy Programme at the Mercatus Centre. And more importantly for today's show is the fact that he has a huge love of movies and has posted hundreds and hundreds of mini-reviews and rankings on his blog. And actually, I think in all, there are probably over a thousand reviews. And if you're looking for a good movie to watch, then I can't think of a better source. Anyway, welcome, Scott, to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Russell. And before we get started, do you want to just say a bit about your blog, where you got the idea, and uh, a bit about you know your your how you do the movie reviews, and maybe a bit about your scoring system? Okay, so I got the idea for a blog uh, back in uh, late 2008 uh, during the financial crisis. So I thought I had a, a different take on what was going on, and uh, I wanted to sort of present my views for consideration. And uh, I tried a few op-eds that didn't get published, so I went off on my own with a blog called The Money Illusion. And the focus was mostly on monetary policy and macroeconomics in general. But over the years, I've occasionally done posts on other topics I'm interested in, including film reviews and so on. And do you ever think of separating out the film review part of the blog and, 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 and making that its own thing? I guess I could. I'm, I'm not really very good with the technical aspects, so I just sort of throw it all in one place. Somebody else handles that for me. And um, uh, there is one commenter that has apparently sort of collated all my reviews over the years and created, like I don't know, an Excel spreadsheet or something with them. I actually uh, downloaded the spreadsheet and uh, printed it out, and that's how I know that there were over a thousand reviews. Oh, because okay. it's very diff- without that spreadsheet, it's actually pretty difficult to navigate to the uh, to the reviews. So I I got back to to twenty two to twenty one to twenty, and then it gets quite hard to find them. But but with that spreadsheet, it was it was it was great. Well, the first post I did was at the end of the decade, around twenty ten, films of the first decade of the twenty first century, and. Um, I'd only actually written down records for about five years. So for the previous five, I relied on memory. And so I'm sure I missed a bunch of good ones that I've forgotten about from the early 2000s. But after that, I went to once a year. And during most of that period, I was only seeing movies uh, at the theater. I didn't like watching them on TV. Hmm. And then uh, for various reasons, the last few years, I've started watching a lot of films on TV COVID, I suppose, is one reason. Also, there's more films available. And uh, I got a real big OLED TV where, you know, the quality of the image is pretty good. And so that makes a difference to me because I'm primarily interested in film from a visual aspect, more so than, say, the screenplay or acting story and so Mm -hmm. on. So that's the blog, and I think you should you should definitely get get a grandchild or you know somebody who understands technology to sort it out uh-huh. because I think it would be uh, I think it would be an incredibly useful resource. I mean, I'd certainly using the spreadsheet. I was thinking, oh, I must I must look that one out. I must look that one out. So anyway, that's just my thought. So let's get down to to the harder questions. Um, and my first question is, why are modern movies so terrible? Well, they're obviously not all terrible. It's, it's hard for me to answer that question. I, I tend to think of art forms going through a cycle where the art form is sort of perfected. Say there's a new technology or new ideas, and it reaches some sort of perfection, and then artists look for alternative ways of expressing themselves. And so art tends to become increasingly abstract or difficult for the average person over time. You know, modern music, modern painting, and so on is often more difficult for people than more classical versions. And with film, um, I think, you know, by maybe about the 1970s, a lot of the classical styles had been done. So filmmakers looked for alternative ways of expressing themselves and, and film kind of diverged at that point. So there were art films and there were popular films. So as far as what's happened to the overall quality, that's really hard to say. I tend to favor older films usually, but um, there are some new ones I like quite a bit. 
I'll just give you a little quote from your review of uh, a Japanese film, The Bad Sleep Well, a Kurosawa film. Uh-huh. And you review that, and then you say it was released in the same year as Psycho, La Ventura, The Apartment, Peeping Tom, Breathless, La Dolce Vita, When a Woman Ascends the Staircase, Late Autumn, and The Naked Island. That's almost a masterpiece a month. And what did 2020 bring us? Tenet, L-O-L. <laughs> so <laughs> that does seem like uh, that does seem like quite a, yeah. quite an indictment. There's definitely a, a golden age of film where a lot of new ideas were explored and a lot of great filmmakers produced masterpieces. I think that's true to some extent in other art forms as well. I'm not as knowledgeable about all the various art forms, but you know, you think of Renaissance in Italy and Tuscany and so on, or maybe a period of classical music in Germany and Austria a couple hundred years ago. And But once those styles have been explored, talented people don't want to continue making something in the same style. So it becomes dif- more difficult to create something new and fresh. You can always create commercial cinema because there's always a new generation coming along that haven't seen the old movies. And you can create commercial cinema with much better technology, better special effects, and so on. But in terms of really creative film, uh, I think it becomes harder to find new ways of expressing yourself. I believe Harold Bloom called this the anxiety of influence in reference to literature. And by that, he means that you're always frightened that you're just quoting. Right. What, what, yeah. Yes. Something like you mentioned Aventura, La Ventura, Antonioni's film. You know, that was that's considered a masterpiece partly because it was a fresh style. And I don't think making this the same sort of film today would have the same impact. Now, there are a lot of films, actually, in a sense, he was a little bit ahead of his time. So I think a lot of the characteristic style of the late 20th century, early 21st century in art films was this kind of minimalism where there's not a lot of, you know, drama, a lot of story taking place slow film, if you want to call it that. And so in that sense, I think he was very influential. But, you know, when people talk about the masterpieces, they tend to quote the first ones in any particular style. I asked that question because I was sort of looking up on the internet uh, one night and I came across Matt Damon talking about how DVDs are no longer a thing. And he said that in the old days, a film had two lives. It has its, had its initial release, and then it had its DVD release. And he said that made the economics of, a, of the film industry different. And he felt that was one of the reasons why they were no longer making the kind of films that he liked to appear in. Do you think there's an economic angle to this? Mm, good question. Um, and the other thing I found, the other, the other explanation I found, it was quite simple. It was 16-year-olds in China. So that's, that's the audience for your, for your movies. So, so people aren't aiming them at the widest possible audience because they've got this huge uh, audience of teenagers and of, well, of China, you know, this, this, this massive market. The economics, I think, has definitely played a role in film. Let's kind of go back in history and think, through how it developed. We had the period where movies were watched routinely in the way we'd watch TV today. So TV didn't exist, or most people didn't have TV sets in, say, 1950. So they might go to a film noir almost every week. So you had that sort of film being produced to cater to an adult audience that, um, you know, wasn't watching TV. When TV became more prevalent, Movies had to distinguish themselves. So you had these big color blockbusters, Technicolor in the 60s and so on. Then at some point, for various reasons, I think a lot of adults stopped going to the movie theater. So a lot of films that were at the movie theater would appeal to teenagers, the superhero films and so on. And then you had, you know, smaller films, lower budget that would, you know, appeal to uh, more of a niche audience, Woody Allen comedies and so on. But if you're not seeing a film at a theater, then what you want in a film is going to be different because there's there's certain types of films that don't really come across as well on TV as they do on the big screen. Let's say Stanley Kubrick films. Mm. So if the audience for those films isn't going to the movie theater, 
it's going to be more difficult to make those films in the first place. Right? Teenagers aren't typically going to go see those films. And so the, the fact that, uh, you know, people started watching at home rather than going to the theater made a lot of sort of the more sophisticated adult audience switch over into so-called quality TV. You know, these TV series that are highly rated. And those kind of took over from what used to be called middle brow quality film. Mm. You still have the very sort of artistic highbrow film that has a very small audience, often very slow moving, not a lot of plot or drama. And those are often produced overseas in the last few decades, often in Asia, but also Europe to some extent. The place I always think of when it comes to the slowest of slow cinema is maybe some of the Romanian films. And uh, there's one I talked about on uh, on the podcast before called Police Adjective. I don't know if you've come across that one, but, but really nothing happens until the last 20 minutes when there's a... Uh, it's a really terrific scene where where the police captain is berating his uh, his uh, junior using a dictionary to sort of put him in his place. But but really nothing has happened until that last twenty minutes, and I think it's a terrific film, and I really enjoyed it. But uh, I don't remember if I saw that one. I do remember a few Romanian films, maybe the same director. One was I think Death of Lazarus. Yes, that's right, where where the whole film is just him being wheeled around. Right. Uh, so again, very sort of minimalist uh, approach. Um, uh, a lot of people said that that film, the death, the, maybe, in, maybe in America they called it the death of Lazarus, but in, in the UK title it was the death of Mr. Lazarescu. That, that's my mistake, actually. That's the correct title. I, I think I was thinking of the biblical reference. So. Yeah, which I think you're meant to, right? <laughs> which I think is exactly. <laughs> you're correct. But when I read the reviews, they're all saying this is a stunning indictment of the Romanian health system. And maybe it's a stunning indictment of the British health system. But I thought, gee, that doesn't look too bad. Everybody tried to help. They may have been very rude to him, uh, you know, because he's a drunk and, uh, and there he is taking up room when all, the, when, you know, when all the hospitals are filled or the victims of this coach crash. But actually, you know, after they finish being rude to him, they do give him a diagnosis and they suggest the best place he might like to go to. So I, I often feel exactly the same way. When I read reviews, they talk about how it shows how appalling something was. And I, I often think, no, it was actually pretty reasonable. I'm very skeptical in general of political interpretations of films. And uh, yeah, that's, um, that's a good example. I think you did an earlier podcast um parasite where alex Tabron. i did and i was going to and i was going to that was that was one of my questions was going to be um so his argument right was that parasite was actually completely misinterpreted and that it was in fact a strongly pro-capitalist film where the where the poor family they're shown as failing because of their personal defects you know, he gives the example that they can't even produce decent pizza boxes. And so it's them that's flawed rather than the system. And I just wondered what your view was on that. Well, I think he's right. I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's pro-capitalist. My view is that, you know, on one level, people will say everything's political, uh, which means in that case, nothing is really political in any meaningful sense, right? Yeah. So for me, political means like, what does it say about public policy? And I don't think films have, outside of documentaries, I don't think films have anything important to say about public policy in general. I mean, films might give you the impression that war is bad, poverty is bad, cruelty is bad, and so on. But a film can't really explain whether war is better prevented with a hawkish or dovish policy. It can't explain whether poverty is better uh, eliminated through capitalism or socialism. It's just not suited to really evaluate public policy questions. So any sort of message that comes out of a film, political message, ends up being very, very simplistic. On the other hand, I think film has a lot to say about ethical questions, which you could argue underlies a lot of politics, right? So I think film does tend to instill what you might call liberal values, you know, sympathy for people different from you, uh, opposition to cruelty, and leads toward sort of in the direction of utilitarian values. But I, I view those as like ethical questions rather than political questions. 
and when you have a have a very political film, it, it can come across as propagandistic and it kind of falls dead, you know, at your feet. But I was just trying to think of there's a director, a Japanese director that I quite admire. I haven't seen that many of his films, but those I have seen I've I've admired, and that's Nagisa Oshima. And he did a film called Death by Hanging, which starts off as a critique of the capital punishment system that they have in Japan. And then it kind of morphs into what happens is there's the the guy is hung. Uh, you know, it starts off like a documentary, but then 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 the guy there is hung, and the hanging fails. He for some reason he doesn't die. Now they've got a terrible problem. They don't know whether or not to hang him again, or whether they need to let him go. And the thing is complicated because he's lost his memory, and they think well provided he knows what he's done and feels guilty, then we can hang him again. So now they have to sort of get his memory to come back. And so they reenact the crime and it gets more and more farcical. But underlying this is that he's a Korean. And so bit by bit, their sort of racism towards Koreans comes out more and more and more in the film. And actually, they start to reenact some of their own atrocities, which they had committed during the war. I guess that's about as political as you could get. Well, let's let's break that down. So. I think film does tend to push people towards being opposed to racism and having more sympathy for people that are different from them than they'd have maybe in the absence of film. I think film and TV contributed to the success of the gay rights movement in the last few decades in many countries, for instance. Right. So that part, I think, is correct. It does affect our ethical values. Um as far as capital punishment, um, I'm not sure if I saw that film, but based on the way you've described the plot, I don't think it tells us much useful about capital punishment that we didn't already know. No, and it starts off as a documentary where uh, the director is more or less telling us, isn't capital punishment a terrible thing? And then it morphs into the drama. Anyway, it's uh, it's well it's well worth a look. Right. I've... Um, seen a number of films, uh, including one fairly recently where someone was imprisoned wrongly for a long, long period of time and eventually vindicated. Now, you could argue that's a political film against prison because it's showing the unfairness. But those films, although they give you something to think about, don't really make me oppose prison or want to shut down prisons, even though clearly showing something that does happen and probably too often. But again, I I think it's just too uh, blunt an instrument to really evaluate interesting public policy issues, which often weigh costs and benefits. And the film is going to show you one side, the side the director wants you to identify with. There's certainly a lot of anti-capital punishment films. There's also a fair number of kind of, you know, right-wing films, I guess you could say, where you sort of root for the cop to be a vigilante and <laughs> get the bad guys by whatever means possible. Sure. So, I mean, there's different ways of looking at, at that question. but um, There was another film which I paired with Parasite because I thought it was, I personally thought it was a better film than Parasite. And you give it a lower rating, although not much lower rating. Um, you give it a 3.7, and that's Burning. And actually, you mentioned political. You say it's a fascinating Korean mystery involving two men who are interested in the same woman. The film has some fine performances that went beyond the typical cliches. Even after the film was over, I was still trying to put the pieces together. Uh, my only reservation is that the director tried to do a bit too much mixing of the political and the metaphysical. Uh, still, there is one scene in the film that stands out above anything else I saw this year. And I wonder if you remember the film and if you remember the scene. If it's a spoiler, you know, shout out because there is a scene that stands out in my mind towards the end of the film. Oh, I thought I think it might have been the scene where they were just sort of hanging out at a place in the countryside at sunset, where they're smoking dope and uh, and she's dancing. Yes, it's been a while since I've seen that, and uh, you know, sometimes uh, if I saw the film again, I might give it a higher rating. I'm surprised I only gave it three point seven because I, when I think back on it, it I have very fond memories of that film. I think it was roughly comparable in quality to Parasite, although I think what impressed me so much about Parasite 
is it's very, very hard to make these days, I think, today, it's very, very hard to make a great work of art that's also very commercial. In the past, it right. wasn't as hard. Um, you know, in the 1970s, Francis Ford Coppola made a number of such films. In the 50s and 60s, Stanley Kubrick, 50s, Hitchcock, and so on. But today, the, the film industry is sort of split into art films and commercial films. And Parasite, uh, I thought, was very commercial, very pop, you know, it would be popular with a wide range of viewers. And also I thought artistically it was brilliant. So I thought Parasite was more special in that sense. Like Burning was a very fine film and I, I really love the director, Lee Chung Dong, I think is. I can't remember. I think it was Lee that directed that one. And some of his other films are also excellent. But it's, it's in a, a genre that's not quite as distinctive as what Wong uh, Joon-ho did in, in Parasite. Yeah, I think that's very fair, actually. I hadn't thought of it like that, but you're right. Parasite was both a wonderful film artistically and also a film that could win the Oscar and be something that pretty much everybody could enjoy, whereas Burning was paradoxically a much slower burning film uh, and inevitably it would have a much smaller audience, uh, just just the nature of the way it tells its story. Yeah, and I don't have strong feelings on which film will be viewed as better, you know, 50 years from now. That's, that's a very difficult... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it is interesting to me Sometimes films which I used to admire, I come back to later. I think, wow, that's a fantastic film. That's still great. And other times I think, goodness, what did I ever see in that film? And and that clunkiness of it really shines through for me. And I, I just wonder, do you have a sense of why that happens? Why we mislead ourselves? Or what's going on there? Is it just our sensibilities change? I think that the films that don't hold up often capture something of the zeitgeist, something of the feeling of the time. And they look very dated in a later period. I did a blog post on a art forger who did forgeries of Vermeer paintings. And those forgeries were accepted, passed as Vermeers around the 1930s. Now when people look at them like, how could anyone ever have thought that was a Vermeer? Well, they, the, the, the women, often it was a portrait of a woman, has something of a 1920s woman, but also something of Vermeer style. So um, but now that we're a long way from the 1920s, that just seems obviously phony and dated. The film I was thinking of, uh, which, which, I, which, which, which I had enjoyed in the past, was The Outlaw Jersey Wales. And I saw it, you know, I showed it to somebody uh, the other day. I just thought, I just don't think it's a very good film. And and I guess because of the Confederate element, which is very strong in it, sensibilities change. But even then, I just felt the whole, the whole structure of the thing <laughs> did nothing for me. Whereas a film like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you know, that still stands up fantastically well. Right, right. I think style is really what carry when when filmmakers have their own powerful, distinctive style like those spaghetti westerns, they become timeless. And when they're just sort of a quality film, quality acting, quality dialogue that is very much of the time, uh, they tend to become dated. After a few decades, people just aren't interested in watching. Now that I watch a lot of old films, and one of the things that interests me is there's sort of like three layers of history. There's today, there's the time the film was made, and there's the era that's portrayed in the film. Right. Which I find interesting. So when you see movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, and so on, or even earlier, the 20s, that are themselves historical films, they're not really reflecting today. They're not reflecting the, the original period they're depicting. They're reflecting something of the time in which they're made. So I find that kind of interesting to, to watch. Maybe there's an example of that. There's a film called uh, Harakiri or Seppuku, which is... I'm sure you must have seen it. It's a very well-known Japanese film where... I think that's on my list, actually. Is that Kobayashi director? Yes, it is. I just saw a Kobayashi film last night, but not that one. I, that's on my list to see next week. But go ahead. Okay. 
Well, well, I won't really say very much about it, but uh, I think it's a terrific film, and I think it bears out what you've just said, and and you know <laughs> maybe we can talk about it at some other time. But I don't know how you are about uh, getting any kind of spoilers. But I would rather the less I know about a film going into it, the happier I am. I I don't really mind spoilers very much. I mean, I, I guess I would rather not have a spoiler if it's a you know a murder mystery or something like that. But uh, I do think that a lot of the best directors, when they do historical films, I'm thinking here of some of Orson Welles' films or Kurosawa. These historical films still seem kind of fresh in some sense today. I mean, they're often like black and white and so on, but sure. they don't really look dated to me because the director's style is so strong. And well, there's a film, sorry, go on. Well, just, you know, compared to maybe some of these, um, like Roman or biblical epics from the sixties that were, you know, big budget <laughs> and look silly today, but, you know, Orson Welles would work with a low budget and, you know, make Othello, Hamlet, whatever, um, Macbeth. And, you know, it still looks, still looks very good. Well, I guess it's just a true artist. Sometimes it takes time to uncover them. I think that was sort of what you were saying about maybe Parasite and Burning. We'll, we'll find out which is the better film, you know, 20, 30 years from now. That's right. Um, but I was thinking about a film like M, where it sort of feels like I can't believe that they nailed it so well back in the, you know, almost before film had started, you know, just gotten going. Uh-huh. And, and, and they have the thriller, the serial killer uh genre and they got it nailed in the first year when they started making you know movies i thought that's extraordinary it's like everything is derivative from this uh from this film i think that's that's true in a lot of areas um the best stuff is produced very soon after something is seen as being possible that's i think it's also true in fields like economics where a lot of the important papers in a new area are done right away uh, the classic papers, and in various art forms. That's interesting. Well, painting and so on. So you're saying that maybe the best people see the possibilities earliest, and so the two go together. Well, it's it's more, it's sort of like, if you think of art as like invention, then once a certain type of invention becomes possible, you'll have the great inventors early on, right? So like, electric power is developed and then Edison and and others immediately develop all these devices, electric lights, movie projectors, phonographs, telephones, all all these things are developed relatively quickly once the technology allowed for the development of these. And in art, once realistic perspective was developed, you had all these masterpieces produced in the Renaissance. So painting reached, you know, a certain peak pretty quickly once those styles were developed. And then, you know, people seek out new styles in art or, or, you know, the new technological developments come along like genetic engineering and science that allows you to, a whole new field opens up. But many of the most important discoveries when a new field opens up, I think, occur relatively early because the people that get there first just have an enormous advantage. I can't think of any other way to explain it Because if you just looked at, like, the number of people that are in the world today compared to hundreds of years ago, we should have 100 people producing music comparable to Bach or Mozart or Beethoven, (laughs) right? (laughs) If you take the growth in population plus the growth in the number of people that are educated and have the financial resources to devote themselves to music, it must be 100 times higher. Yeah. But once... You know, instruments like the harpsichord and piano and all these were developed, they were, you know, symphony orchestra. That opened up possibilities for composers that weren't there before, and they went in and filled those possibilities with masterpieces. And then I think it becomes harder that you can create new styles. So for me, that process, the sort of classic era of film ended around the 70s. And... It wasn't even a question of like different people making movies, even where the same person continued, they couldn't replicate. So Coppola made four masterpieces in the 1970s, you know, three of which are arguably among the greatest films ever made. And he didn't 
really do much of anything after that, at least comparable to what he did in the 70s. And it almost seems like he had exhausted what he had to say. And so once you got in the 80s and 90s, the filmmakers that are now viewed as the best got into increasingly esoteric styles or difficult styles, if that's a better term. You do get um, a Tarantino who produces Reservoir Dogs, which seems to just completely break the mold of all the sort of tired and cliched crime films. It's like, wow, that's completely new style. At least it felt like that to me anyway. The first time I saw it, I thought, wow, they'll never be able to carry on making these lazy films now that that's done because they'll just look stupid beside it. I think you're not such a big fan of Tarantino as perhaps I am. Oh, I'm I'm a fan of Tarantino. The way I think about a lot of the better, younger directors like Tarantino, David Lynch, Wes Anderson, it's sort of like the way mannerism followed the Renaissance, the high Renaissance in painting. So we have the high Renaissance, which achieves a certain type of perfection in painting. And so what are painters going to do next? Well, they start adding twists and let's make it a little different. Let's make it a little odd. Right? And so I think that what a lot of these younger directors were doing after this golden age, according to my theory, completed, say, in the 70s, was to look for something different, something odd, something strange. And they did it in different ways. But I think that's one thing that a lot of those good younger filmmakers, now they're not young anymore, of course, but <laughs> I'm a product of the <laughs> 60s, so. That's my perspective. But, you know, that's, that reminds me a lot of mannerism in art, in painting, how it followed uh, sort of a classic period like the Renaissance. I'm interested you mentioned Wes Anderson because, you know, I say, why are modern movies so terrible? But, uh, you know, Wes Anderson, to me, is nothing more exciting than a new Wes Anderson film, which I'll rush off and see it. You marked the French Dispatch, you know, great for style, not not perhaps so great for the stories, but I went out and saw it, I think, four or five times because and I felt I was seeing more each time. Which one was uh, that? Uh, the French Dispatch. Oh, yes, that's wonderful. So there was so much detail in it. There's just so much going on. I, I think I wrote in my review, you have to see that multiple times. Unfortunately, I've only seen it once. Yeah, he's a wonderful director. And, um, you know, I have to say that it's very possible my claim about modern movies not being very good is simply wrong. Because I, I forget about how many talented young filmmakers are out there. Sometimes I think when you're in the midst of something, you don't really see it for what it is. I'm a huge fan of East Asian films, but I actually got in a little late. I, I didn't really understand what was happening in places like Taiwan at the time. And it was really mm -hmm. only maybe towards the end of the 90s or maybe mid-90s, that I started to recognize how many good films were coming out of you know, Taiwan and Hong Kong, China, and so on. But these films had been around already for a number of years. They were already being made in the 80s. Sometimes you don't really see the great art forms around you until you look back in retrospect. Indeed, and to some extent, I think it wasn't recognized that film was one of the great art forms of the 20th century till the 20th century was almost over. <laughs> right. right. I mean, Hitchcock films weren't viewed as great art when they were being made in the 1950s. Right. You also, you like some of the older films, particularly from Japan. You're a big fan of Ozu, right? Ozu, Mizuguchi, Kurosawa, Narusu. I may be mispronouncing these, by the way. I apologize. And, um, and there's others, uh, the director you referred to recently, Kobayashi, um, mm. the film you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, I only discovered that director fairly recently. Now I plan to go through a bunch of his films. So, yeah, I mean, it was just incredible the number of masterpieces produced in Japan in the 50s and early 60s. But I was quite interested because Ozu is, I think... I mean, along with Kurosawa, but Kurosawa is actually making films which I think are quite appealing to the Western sensibility, whereas I think Ozu is making films which are perhaps a little bit harder for, for Westerners to, to sort of get into. I think they are much more Japanese, if that 
if that's meaningful. They're, they're, they don't feel so international, whereas Kurosawa feels like it's quite appealing to an international audience. But then I look at Shui Imamura, and he sort of was really quite rude about Ozu. I, I think he felt that Ozu's films were very middle class and not very realistic about how Japanese people really were. And Imamura sort of, I think he said quite literally that Ozu was interested in the top half of the body and he was interested in the bottom half of the body. And he said, and I, I wrote it down for this, he said that he traced his interest in lower class women to those he met in the black markets that sprang up after World War II. And he said that they weren't educated and that they were vulgar and that they were lusty, but they were also affectionate and they instinctively confronted their own suffering. And, you know, with, with Ozu films, there is a lot of suffering, but it's a very middle class type of suffering where it's done stoically and in silence. Whereas in Imamura films, you know, it's, you know, there's a much more anguished cry of rage, if you like. I guess as I've gotten older, I've tended to not care very much about what the film is about, but I'm much more interested in the artist's vision. Whatever they're doing, do they do it very well? Mm. So there's definitely differences there. If we take an analogy from painting, uh, both Rembrandt and Vermeer are, are phenomenally talented painters painting around the same time. But, you know, Vermeer is probably more comparable to Ozu, right? Quiet, meditative sure. pictures and maybe Rembrandt a little more like Kurosawa or Imamura, a little more life in them, drama. But I mean, they both do what they do extremely well. So for me, I actually like uh, all of those directors, even though they're the ones that are very sort of vulgar and earthy and wild in Japan, and also the ones that are quiet and meditative, because they're also talented from that period. Right. They're doing what they're trying to do brilliantly. Exactly. Yeah. So when people talk about, do you like sci-fi films? Do you like horror films? You know, do you like this or that? To me, it just comes down to, is it well done? I mean, I do have a little bit of a problem with some extreme horror, <laughs> which I think builds the stomach. But you know, other than that, I'm pretty much open to almost any style or topic as long as it's well done. I completely go along with that. Another, I don't know if you have you come across the Torasan movies, which were churned out one a year for years and years and years. It was this this traveling salesman who would set off on his adventures and have an adventure and then come back to the family. You you come across these, the Torasan movies? Uh, Very big in Japan during, uh, you know, and they went on for, I don't know how many years, decades and decades and decades. But the reason I wanted to mention them was that there's an actress in them called Baisho Chieko, who's my favorite Japanese actress. And she was in a number of films, but every year she was the sister who got left behind and you know so it's a bit part uh-huh. and i just was sort of enraged at this sort of wonderful actress you know every year she would appear in these damn films and she was so much better uh, than than that particular film and even the good films that she was in you know there were kind of melodramas like uh uh the yellow handkerchief which you know it's a great film, uh, or um, Kazoku, which is very interesting because it takes place at the time of the expo. So you're kind of journeying through Japan and you're seeing it, uh, you're seeing Japan develop. Um, but it's like she's in a different film to the other actors because they're generally playing it pretty broad and she's playing it, you know, like a really talented character actress. And there's a scene in a film called A Distant Cry from Spring where this sort of so Lout, you know, sort of quite well off Lout is trying to get her to marry him. And, and eventually there's a sort of an attempted rape. And he plays it quite broad. And she plays it like a woman genuinely terrified. And, you know, the, the difference in tone is really striking. But then it's even more striking that afterwards, there's kind of a comedy scene where, where the guy comes back and tries to uh, tries to attack her rescuer. And it's just and it's played purely for laughs. And then when her rescuer sort of beats up, you know, everybody, that's fine. Now everybody's sort of, you know, that's been settled. <laughs> and, now, and now the, the would-be rapist is kind of readmitted into the community, having apologized for his bad behavior. And I just was very struck how both Japanese film mores and maybe the mores of the time, you know, how we've moved on. But back then, she was still playing it like a modern actress would play it. And, and, and I just feel so sorry for her being in these rather poor films. 
I, yeah, I should check that out sometime. I suppose another reason I like Japanese film is I find Japanese society very interesting, and so the film is a window into their culture to some extent. So let's go back and talk a little bit about Tarantino, because you, you, I think you said in, in one of your reviews that you thought he was just gradually coming off his best, gradually declining. And I sort of wanted to say, I think he still got it. At least I, I really enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it seemed a bit baggy because there were bits in there which maybe you could have just lost very happily. But you've got the scene at the Spahn Ranch, which I thought you know could have been Hitchcock quite easily. I thought it was you know genuinely quite disturbing and uh, at the time you know really. Um, and then you've got the scene where he's playing opposite the little girl who's sort of giving him lectures in in how to act. And I just as a film about male friendship, I thought it was unbeatable. Again, I when I think back on the film, I have very fond memories of it. So I, I'm surprised I didn't rate it too highly. Um, I do think it was a very good film. I think I enjoyed it more than maybe t- two or three of his previous films. Yeah, me too. I think the first um, maybe five films he did were probably my favorites, maybe because they're sort of fresh style. But I, I really enjoyed that one. He doesn't make a lot of films. As I recall, he's only made maybe 10 or so. I think this is the big thing he says he's going to, he's going to make. I can't remember if it's 12 or 10 or there's a, yeah. there's a particular number that he claims he's going to make and then he's going to stop. So I don't know how often he makes it. Once every three years, once every two years, something like that. That's what's allowed him to maintain pretty high quality. Is A lot of the good directors, they're, they go longer and longer between films as their career goes along because they don't want their quality to suffer so that happened to kubrick that happened to uh david lynch and others they would go you know a decade between films late in their career right i think that's happening with tarantino as well i guess it may be i mean i i don't understand how wes anderson can keep the quality up that he does it seems extraordinary one of the things that's very strange is that you know a wes anderson film as soon as you're in it right and yet each one is really quite different yes I mean, I think it's very possible that 50 years from now, he might be viewed as the best filmmaker of his era. That's possible, I think. He, he would certainly be one name that would have to be considered as, as a possibility. What about, uh, I mean, another director that I rate very highly, but again, I think you feel he didn't quite do everything he could have done. I think you said in one of your reviews, and that's Lars von Trier. Well, I like Lars von Trier a lot. But again, more his early stuff. I rewatched his two earliest films. I've kind of forgotten the names. I think one is Europa. I think the element of crime. Element of I think crime. I, the, and um, he had, a long time ago, I saw a wonderful TV series called The Kingdom. And I just read that yes. he's making a new edition uh, of that, sort of like a David Lynch coming back to Twin Peaks ever. Because both of those, I tend to think of both of those directors in the same light. They they did those amazing, what I view as black comedies in the 90s for TV. Two of the greatest black comedies ever made. Although Twin Peaks arguably is not a comedy, but certainly the, the kingdom is. And they had very distinctive films, surreal. And then they've kind of faded a little bit over time. I felt like Lars von Trier didn't fully utilize his talent. He would purposely try to be contrary and do things controversial. I still think he's a wonderfully talented director, but possibly could have even been greater. Yes. I mean, are you thinking about the Dogville films? Uh, Actually, I like that film too. Uh, and I and the one, um, well, Breaking the Waves, I thought was very good. I'm trying to remember these titles now. Another one I liked very much, which maybe you didn't because it was one of his later ones, was Melancholia. Well, I like that a lot too. Right? So, <laughs> there we go. So, it just seemed like there's a, a few that um, some of his more recent stuff that just didn't appeal to me as much. But uh, no, I think he's, uh, I would rate him one of the most interesting European directors of the last, say, 40 years. Right up there with the, the, the best, uh, I don't know who the other top European directors would be. Bellatar and Hungry. But anyway, no, I, I think he's he's very good. 
but you know, I guess my expectations got so high that there were a few films of his that uh, were a little bit disappointing to me. Came out more recently. He made that that couple of films. I can't remember the name now, but it was about pornography. Um, yeah, there was one that was like a two part one. Um, that's right. There was another one. I think it was like Antichrist or something. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get that one at all. You know, I I might not be the best person to judge those films. Sometimes if they're if there's a lot of extreme violence, it turns me off a little bit. So <laughs> I don't know. But he's I, I view him as a, a very talented. And I was surprised when I went back and watched Elements of Crime and Europa, which were kind of you know low budget early films he did. I mean, they're both just wonderful films. That sort of comes back to what you were saying earlier that if that talented people are often talented right from the start, you know, they're yeah, and that also fits by the way into my you know, claim that we went into this sort of mannerism period after the class. You know, I would put him in with the other names I mentioned of, of looking to do something different, adding a twist, being strange, being surreal, and uh, that that's very much of that era. Now, that's in in Western films. I think in East Asia it was a little different because they didn't have maybe this anxiety of influence to the same extent in, say, Taiwan. So they were just sort of trying to find their own style, own way of expressing things. So they could, to some extent, maybe borrow techniques from, say, Antonioni or whatever and apply them to a fresh setting and develop something new, you know, mixing their culture with some European film techniques. You have uh, in Korea, I think it's Hong Sang-soo who does these sort of minimalist, quiet stories about manners, young people dating and so on. That's similar to French films from the 60s or 70s. Mm-hmm. But it's, it feels very fresh because, you know, it's, it's Korean society, which has many differences from Europe. And uh, he has his own take He's another, you know, I think underrated director. His films are not splashy like Parasite, but often very interesting films. Do you have a couple of titles that you can remember the name of that you can just mention to people who might be interested? I'm really terrible with names. You could, like, Google. (laughs) You could maybe find some of them there. I just don't remember names of Asian films very well. I'm trying to think. There There was a Taiwanese film I enjoyed very much called The River. I don't know if you saw that, where it starts off with the guy is, is asked to act as an extra by lying down mm-hmm. uh, in a river and, and pretending to be a corpse, uh, I think is the idea. And then the implication is that maybe the river was polluted, but after that he develops a pain in his neck. I do remember that. And, and the whole film is hit, yeah, and the whole film is him going from place to place to try and get relief. And 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 I don't really know why I enjoyed it so much, but but I but I thought it was a terrific film, and then and then it's sort of very powerful at the end. You might want to check out some of his other. That's Sai Mingling, the director, and yes, I think so. I just saw one called The Hole, which was interesting, and I've seen a number of him, his films. I think of the three major Taiwanese directors of that you know, last few decades. Uh, in addition to him, you have Edward Yang who did uh, some classics like uh, A One and a One. Right. And um, I think it something like A Better Summer Day or something like that. And then maybe the top Taiwanese director, Ho Xiaoshan, uh, who's, who did a number of masterpieces. Was, I think one of the great filmmakers of the last few decades. And uh, City of Sadness is one of my favorites of his, but he did so many wonderful films. I feel that Japanese cinema has really come off the boil uh-huh. in the last period. I think Drive My Car was was kind of the exception to that. It was sort of a more substantial film, but but by and large, Japanese film has been pretty disappointing. Yeah, especially in comparison to the earlier decades. The director of Drive My Car, I've forgotten his name now, has done about five films, and I think they're all Almost all of them are worth watching. And some of them, I think, are as good as Drive My Car. I must look them out. I, I, I suppose there's been a few others like, what was it, Shoplifters? Yeah, I was just going to mention the director, Corrida. I, I, again, I may be mispronouncing the name. K-O-R-E-E-D-A. He's done a number of films that I've really liked. 
I'm trying to remember the name of the one about the children that were abandoned by the mother. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. Very emotionally powerful film. For me, at least. I had a young daughter at the time I saw that. I found it almost unwatchable. What's that? I found it almost unwatchable because it was so yeah, so upsetting. Right. I felt the same way. Uh, it, and yet, you know, it wasn't in a – I didn't think it was in a, that manipulative a way. You might get in some melodramatic Western films. But uh, he's done a number of very fine films. You know, he's not, like, very innovative in terms of style. So I don't know whether – People will still watch his films 50 years from now, but I, I think he makes very high quality films. But, you know, again, when you think of the, the earlier period of Japanese film, there are just so many masterpieces being produced by so many different directors. This is what I don't quite understand, whether it's, whether it's economics. I mean, it's partly what you were saying. I, I asked uh, Alex Tabrock, you know, what should I ask? And uh, he said, well, ask him if there are eras in films. And, and I guess everything you've been saying... Oh, yeah, there's definitely. I mean, the, the the Japanese golden age was 50s and 60s, I guess. And then, but for Korea, it's maybe the most recent. It's roughly from about 2000 to the present for South Korea. Taiwan's golden age started before that, maybe in the late 80s or so, and uh, ended sooner. It feels like it must have something to do with the availability of money, but also something to do with... Well, I guess what you were talking about, that, that suddenly it becomes, you know, the subject matters become available to the filmmakers in some way. Right. Um, it could be, it must be a number of things, but, you know, it's interesting to compare South Korea and, and mainland China um, because culturally South Korea is ahead of mainland China, despite China having a much bigger population. And it's hard to understand why that is, not just in film, but I, I'm told in pop music and other areas as well. TV dramas, etc. Part of the problem in China might be the the government. You know, censorship might make things more difficult. But there are a number of art films that are being produced in mainland China, despite the the government. You mentioned the film by Jia Junka. Um, there's some other directors, young directors there that are very good. But again, Korea has just completely dominated China in, in the last few decades in film. That surprised me. I wouldn't. Have, I certainly wouldn't have expected that in the '90s when there were promising Chinese directors like Zhang Yimou producing, you know, really excellent films. And I hardly heard anything out of Korea at the time. And given China's economic growth, why isn't more happening there? I just don't know. And as you say, films can be can be wonderful without having to be fantastically political. Mm -hmm. um, in some ways, it's kind of surprising that Jia Jiangke has been able to make all of these films because they are sort of critiques of Chinese society. And maybe in the future, you know, the censorship is getting worse in China recently. So maybe they won't be right. made. I, there was a, Zhang Yimou had a film called One Second. It's about one second of film that were, during like the Cultural Revolution or something that was preserved. I don't know exactly the plot. But anyway, that film was, as far as I know, never released. The Chinese government wouldn't allow it to be released. And he's a major director who's like very prestigious in China. He did the opening ceremony for both of their Olympics. He choreographed or whatever the visuals. Is that the guy who did Raise the Red Lantern? Yes. I can't remember. Right. And he's done a, a lot of art films in like the 90s. And then he did more commercial, like martial art films like Hero and House of Flying Daggers or something like that. And uh, I did enjoy Hero very much. And uh, and it's interesting, you you gave exactly the same review to House of Flying Daggers and Hero saying it was very pretty, but you know, but not much else. And I, I sort of felt Hero was a bit cleverer. Oh, that could be. Yeah, I mean, I, li I think I liked both films. You know, they're not exactly what I'm looking for, but I mean, uh, if I'm going to watch a martial arts film, I'd rather watch something that Jung and Moon does because he does it better than others. <laughs> yeah, and and actually, it's funny you say about the politics and and how they get the films made because there was a scene in well, there was a section in Ash's Purest White where the heroine decides that she's going to she's going to emigrate to Xinjiang, I think it is, which is where the Uyghur are. 
Uh-huh. And then something happens, and halfway on her way there, she gets off the train. There's some weird bit where she's seeing sort of UFOs in the sky, and she gets back on the train and goes back again. And I felt that was the director saying, I would like to go to Xinjiang and talk about that, but I just can't go there. Uh, and and I was surprised he was allowed to get to get away with it. Oh, that could be. I, as I recall, Tyra Cowen had a interpretation of that film that wasn't obvious to me when I watched it, but I think Tyler often sees things I don't see and that the director wanted you to believe that beyond a certain point, everything was not real or imagined or something like that. I don't, I, I'd have to go back and look at his blog post, but uh, he had an interesting take on it. I tend to watch movies from sort of a visual angle and Tyler often notices more intellectual aspects of films that I overlook references and ideas and implicit critiques of this or that. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know if you saw uh, Tom Cruise's latest Maverick Top Gun, which, uh, which I did see and I enjoyed very much. Somebody said that the whole film really made sense. If you imagine that he was, he was killed in the opening. Right. uh, Crash. I didn't see that. And that, and that the rest, and the rest of the film is just what's going through his mind and, you know, in, in the few seconds before he dies. And I thought that was quite an interesting. Yeah. I should see that film. I, I missed that one. And, um, I, I, I did read that interpretation as well. I think that was also t- Tyler might have had that interpretation as well. Okay, this was somebody off of uh, it was John Schilling uh, who sort of a oh, okay. uh, appears, yeah, nice guy who uh, who who sort of is often in the comments on Astral Codex Ten or whatever it's called. Oh yes, um, so maybe he read it somewhere. But I, as soon as he said it, I thought, wow, that makes sense. But Tom Cruise, I mean, I think you're saying he's he's sort of beginning to decline, but he was great in, in Maverick. And I don't know, did you see the film Edge of Tomorrow, the science fiction film, uh, which it's an alien invasion film, and sort of we're, we're getting right, ready to strike back against the aliens. I would recommend that one. It's a, uh, it's a much cleverer film than I would have expected. I think it's a shame it didn't do better at the time. It sort of sank beneath the waves, but I, I thought it was a, I thought it was absolutely terrific. Okay, I'll watch for that. Okay, look, I think uh, we've gone past an hour, which uh, is very kind of you to spend that time. So thank you very much. Is there anything else we should cover before we, uh, before we bring it over? Is, is there anything you want to recommend to people? There are so many things I could recommend. I don't really. There's, there's many Asian directors we haven't even talked about. Uh, I'm a big fan of Wong Kar Wai films, a Hong Kong director. 2046 and, um, is it 2046? And uh, the famous one. Yeah, In the Mood for Love. In the Mood for Love. Drunken Express and so on. But less known directors, there's a couple, If you for people interested in art films, one named B, Gan, B-I, then G-A-N is the last, is the other name. In China, I think the surname comes first, by the way. And another one, H-U and B-O is the other name, who both. Those are not well-known directors, but I think their talent is comparable to Jia Jiangke. And uh, unfortunately, Hu Bo died at a very young age, very recently. He just did one film, but it's really excellent. Do you remember the name of the film, or is it? Are you blank? Something about a sitting elephant, but I don't remember the exact title. But <sighs> yeah, I uh, vaguely remember that. Yeah, yeah. something about a, a sitting elephant. Uh, but you could probably Google and find it. And. Um, Begone did one called like Long Day's Journey into Night, something like that, reference to you know, earlier. And actually that one, the last, oh, 30 minutes are in 3D. <laughs> it shifted. <laughs> really unusual for an art film. Uh, now these are very slow films with oh, plot. So I'm, I've got to- I remember that. I did see that film. Uh, I think, you know, there's some scene where there's some sort of a ropeway where somebody's yes. being winched along. Yeah. Unfortunately, these films, you know, you you do not want to watch them on a little laptop or something because it's really <laughs> the visual aspect that's so strong in many Asian films. I mean, that's, as I said before, I'm very interested in the visual aspect of films. And I think that's where a lot of Asian directors are very strong. If you're more interested in dialogue and like Woody Allen films and stuff like that, 
these films may not be for you. But uh, anyway, I'll throw those names out there. Well, I'll give you a couple. Uh, and actually, from what you're saying, they're probably exactly the kind of films that won't appeal to you. But there are a couple that I enjoyed. Uh, one is uh, One Cut of the Dead, which is a sort of a zombie movie for, for people who don't, you know, you don't need to like zombie movies to enjoy this movie, but it's a comedy. It's called One Cut of the Dead. One Cut of the Dead. Yeah, because the idea is that the whole film is is made in one cut, so there's no... Oh. It's one of these films where they're maybe not being completely upfront with you about what you're seeing. And I, I always quite enjoy these kind of puzzle movies. That's sort of making it sound grander than it is, but uh, but I enjoyed it thoroughly. And then the other film, which you could say the same thing about, is A Stranger of Mine. And uh, if you can, I don't know if you can find it, uh, you know, all these films, it, it, it enrages me. I was I was trying to find In the Mood for Love, uh, and it's not streaming anywhere in the UK, and I can't buy it on Amazon. So go figure. Uh, hmm. But yeah. A stranger of mine. It's uh, it's good fun. Okay, thank you. Okay, shall we uh, shall we end it there? Okay. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. I've enjoyed it hugely. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that's the end of today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, then I have a big favor to ask. I don't look to make any money from the podcast. There's no advertising or anything like that. I just do this because I enjoy speaking to the guests and, you know, I'm keen for them to get as big an audience as possible because I think, you know, they are really, really good people. So if you could share it on whatever social media channel you use, tweet it out, whatever it is, and even better, if you could leave a review on iTunes, that would be absolutely fantastic. Anyway, goodbye for now.